Well, good morning, Christ community. Uh, on top of what is perhaps the weirdest year of all of our lives, we add on to the pile of strangeness this Antarctica-like weather that has taken over the Dallas-Fort Worth area, uh, forcing us into a temporary, short-term, uh, minor lockdown again. And uh, of all the things, here we are. But uh, that's okay. That's okay. We we trust the Lord. He is sovereign over the weather. I. I love what uh, you know talks about in in Psalm 147 that uh, that that he that he uh, is in charge of the snow and the freezing weather and and um, we we trust his providence over this as well. Uh, today is Saturday for me. I'm recording this on a Saturday. If you're watching this, it's Sunday for you. And yet, knowing the trajectory of where the weather was going to go, knew that I'd probably better get something prepared for you on on Sunday, and which I was glad to do. And obviously, you can tell this is going to be, you know, very different from what we normally do. I'm not in a suit. I'm pretty uh, raw and unpolished, unshaven. I will leave it for you to guess whether or not I have showered today or not. I won't tell you. You guess. But uh, but literally, I just wanted to sp spend some time with you and 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 spend time talking about dialoguing about a you know a really important issue in the church and, and in the Christian life. And you know, one of the burdens that uh, I have. Uh, for uh, you as individual believers and for us as a church is the topic of, of life change and transformation, the, the topic of sanctification, the, the issue of growth in Christ-like maturity in the Christian life. That's a real burden of mine. That, that's, that's, that's at the center of, of what we're, we're, we're doing right now, at the center of what it means to be a Christian is that we agonize in these fallen bodies, in this fallen world with, with hearts that are deceptive and, and wicked. And although we are regenerate, although we are transformed, although we are new creatures, new creation in Christ, there, there is the battle and the war waged in our hearts every single day. And what that means is that we need a lot of help. We need a lot of help. And, you know, we, we've talked a lot about redemptive relationships over the past year. And, and, and all redemptive relationship is, is a summary way to describe everything that the New Testament says our relationships with one another should be like. And what a redemptive relationship is, at its essence, just simply means that your spiritual growth is my top priority. My spiritual growth is your top priority. A redemptive relationship, you understand, is, is built on the premise that your holiness is my business and my holiness is your business. It's built on the premise that to be a Christian, to be in the church, means that we are a synergy of souls, inseparably connected to one another, that we are mutually codependent upon one another for our spiritual growth into Christ-like maturity. Right? I mean, that, that's, that's, that's at the center of what it means to be a Christian. That as we abide in Christ and as we are attached to him and cling to him through his word, that we also are connected and attached to one another. I, I love the picture of the chain link-like nature of the church where we all are connected to one another. And you think about the Christian life and, and how urgent it really is. And it is extremely urgent. We, we uh, you know, the, the path of perseverance, our, our perseverance firm until the end, our perseverance in Christ and making it till the end and not apostatizing, not, not abandoning our faith, that is profoundly dependent upon our word-filled relationships with one another. That's the church. That's, that's, that's at the center of what it means to be a Christian. And so that's really my burden this morning. That's, that's what I want to talk about. 
is, is redemptive relationships and, and how do we do that? And actually what I want to do just in sort of this casual sit down, conversational, dialogical kind of way, just stand back and, and talk about, okay, how do we help one another think through the struggles in our lives? Right? Because, because that's really what we're responsible for one another to do. This is not just some private thing. The Christian life is not some private, individualized, isolated thing where my struggles are only my concern. No, I mean, you think about the life of a local church, that what, what it means to be part of a body. And what it means is that we are to know one another at a level of depth, at, at a level of, of, of closeness, at a, at a level of um, affection that we know what one another's struggles are. We know what's going on. We, we are open and vulnerable and honest and that we speak truth. We speak reality into one another's lives. And so the heart is deceptive. Sin is complicated. Life is hard. You know, the, 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 the path of sanctification, you know, demands supernatural resources that we don't have within ourselves. And so what that means then, and this is, this is what, what we're going to talk about, what, what that means then is that we have to have a growing level of skill and expertise to help one another, mutually help one another in our struggles against sin and temptation. Does that make sense? That, that's really what I want to talk about. How do, we, how do we grow, increasingly grow in our skill and expertise and ability to be able to speak truth into one another's lives so that we can help one another grow in Christ-like maturity, grow in life change and transformation. That's, that's what I'm after this morning. And I'm really, I'm really excited about this. I'm really uh, um, uh, you know, passionate about us being able to grow in, in, in this area. I wanna grow at, at doing this uh, for you and, 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 and I want you to grow at doing this for one another. Um, but let me let me start off with a question, though, um, to, to sort of get us started. So when you think about it this way, uh, uh, we know every Christian knows that that Christ died for them, right? We we know that Christ died for us, and at some level, we understand that Christ changes our lives, right? I mean, so that's that's basic. We understand that Christ died for us. At some level, he he changes our lives, um, and we also know that the word of God is filled with commands that tell us what to do, right? I mean, so, so we know that. So Christ died for us. We know that he changes lives. He calls us to have changed lives. His word is filled with commands, right? The question is, and this is really important, the question is, what is the disconnect between uh, our lives and what Christ accomplished? Does that make sense? What, what's, what's the disconnect there? So Christ died for us. He, he calls us to life change. His word is filled with commands and our lives filled with struggle and, and maybe even failure and maybe even, you know, falling short and, and, and disobedience and sin. Like, like, what's the disconnect? The question is, um, we what, what dots are not being connected between what the Bible says on the one hand and how we actually live on the other? Like, like why do we get into places where we struggle with sin and um, where, uh, uh, put it this way, what are the missing links in our sanctification? And I've actually got seven. I've got seven links, uh, missing links, you know, that, that explain why it is that our lives 
become filled with unnecessarily filled with sin and struggle and why we have these issues in our lives and why it is uh, that there's this discrepancy between what God's word says and how we actually live. So that's that's where I'll, I'll just you know get real casual, real conversational. But but here are, here are seven. Uh, disconnects in our lives that explain why it is that we let sin into our lives, why we let sin take over in our lives. And the reason why I'm giving this to you is because I want you to take these things that I'm about to talk about and store them away in your arsenal, in your biblical counseling arsenal, so that you'll be able to help and minister to one another. That's really why I'm doing this. I'm going to talk about sanctification, life change, transformation, all these things, because I want you to be able to, to equip you to, to have uh, weapons in your arsenal to be able to do redemptive relationships. Does that make sense? I want to give you the tools you need to be able to speak the word of God into one another's lives, to be one another's biblical counselor. So here they are. Here, here are seven disconnects in our lives that explain uh, why it is that we let sin and temptation take over our lives. What, what happened there? What's the disconnect between those two things? So uh, the first thing is this, the first reason why sin begins to take over in our lives is because we, number one, we underestimate the power of sin. We, we underestimate the power of sin, don't we? You see, we, we don't realize, we don't really think about how powerful uh, sin can actually be. We, we, we don't know how sin operates. We, we don't know how it works. We, we don't know... Um, its nature, how it allures and entices. We don't know the deceptive nature of the human heart. We don't know, we, we aren't, our, our senses aren't keen to understand, highly trained to understand the lies that the sin of our own hearts actually tells. We, we forget, you see, at some level that our hearts are like a factory. Our hearts are like a factory that deliberately poisons every single word and thought and motive and feeling and action. That is who we are. That's the number one reason why we let sin take over in our lives, because number one, we underestimate the power of sin. The second reason why we let sin creep into our lives, take over our lives, is because number two, we overestimate our power to resist sin. So first, we underestimate the power of sin itself, but number two, we overestimate our power to resist sin. And that's true, isn't it? We grossly assume that we have what it takes to deal with, with sin. We, we are cavalier, right? We walk onto the battlefield of life with no, uh, with no Kevlar, with no bulletproof vest, with no helmet. We, we don't have the shield of faith. We think we are, you know, we have a Superman, superhero complex, and we think we, we are made out of steel. We are not made out of steel. Psalm 103 says that we are but dust. And so we... We overestimate our power to resist sin, and that explains why it is we so easily fall into it. Number three, third reason why we there's a disconnect between what God commands and how we live, why we let sin creep into our lives, is because number three, we are unfamiliar with the majesty of God. We are unfamiliar with the majesty of God. In other words, we don't have a profound God consciousness that knows that no matter where we're standing, we're standing on holy ground, right? We, we don't have that. We don't have that that sense that every room we go into, whether uh, whether someone's there or not, that God is there. God is does not weigh heavily on our 
consciousness. We, we, we are not in active contemplation of his beauty and glory and that who he is, who he has revealed himself to be in his word, that doesn't that doesn't infiltrate our private secret moments. And that explains, that's exactly why uh, sin creeps into our lives because in those secret private moments when no one is watching, we automatically assume at some level God isn't watching either. We, we are unfamiliar with the majesty of God. There's a fourth reason, a fourth reason why we let sin creep into our lives, why there's this discrepancy between what the Bible commands and how we actually live. Number four, we, we are unacquainted with the achievements of Christ. We're unacquainted with the achievements of Christ. You see, we know that Christ died for sin in a general way. We know that his death accomplished something, but the specific achievements of what he did, the, the specific uh, uh, glories and riches that he actually purchased for the people for whom he died, we're just not acquainted with those. We don't exactly know, okay, what, what are the things that Christ bought with his blood and and that and, and and that we can get access to those we don't know those things and and so what that means is is that we need to grow in our understanding in the specifics the particularities of what it is that Christ purchased for the people for whom he died so that's that's number 4 we are unacquainted with the achievements of Christ a fifth reason why there is a discrepancy between what the bible commands and how we actually live why we let sin invade our lives is because number 5 we are unaware of how to access the power of Christ. We're, we're unaware of how to access the, the power of Christ. You see, we, we know that Christ has done something and that it's real and that it's actual and historical, but what we struggle with is connecting the dots between an event that happened 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem and the, the actual temptations and struggles that I face now in real time. And, and, and we don't know how to access, okay, the power that Christ supplies. We don't know how to gain access to that power. How do I experience that now in real time, in the trenches of real life? And we don't know. The Bible explains it. The Bible gives the answer. But we are, we are unsure of that, unaware of how to access the power of Christ. There's a sixth reason why there's the discrepancy in our lives, why we let sin and temptation uh, take over our lives, is because number six, we are unsure of the meaning, the point, and the goal of sanctification. Right? We, we don't even know what the target is. We are unsure of the point of sanctification. We're not really sure like why we're supposed to obey. We're not really sure why we're supposed to do what God commands. We, we have no idea. I mean, we, we have some idea, okay, it brings, brings him glory, that's, that's true, but, but we don't see the urgent, eternal, Christ-exalting significance of holiness. M many Christians, I, I fear, really sort of boil down that, that we obey and we have to be holy and, and, and that our thoughts of the reasons why we do that are, are, are something little more profound than Santa Claus is coming to town, he's checking his list, and he's going to find out who's naughty or nice and be good for goodness sake, right? I mean, it's just sort of like this, uh, well, be you better be good because that's what Christians do, right? And, and yet, and yet what we don't see when we, when we have these minimalistic ideas of why we obey, why we be holy, we miss glorious realities, compelling vision of, of why we pursue life change and transformation. Why do we be holy? Why do we obey? 
And because the reasons the Bible gives for why we do are so beautiful and so compelling that if we knew them, we would see greater growth and transformation in our lives. But there's a seventh reason why we let sin invade our lives, creep into our lives, why we have this, this um, tragic inconsistency between what the Bible says and how we actually live. Number seven is that we are unskilled in thinking about eternity and the age to come. We are unskilled in thinking about eternity and, and the age to come. In other words, we have a spiritual myopia. We're, we're short-sighted. We can't see the glorious finish line of human history. Does, does that make sense? We, in other words, we don't understand eschatology. You see, if we understood where human history is headed and where things are going to end up and what the finish line of all human history is, that in itself is a compelling, motivating, transforming factor that, that revolutionizes our lives. If, if we get eschatology and how the world is going to end and what's going to take place, what that does, you understand, is it gives us perspective on the present. It gives us the ability, added power and fuel to, to fight sin in the present. The future affects the present. And so those are the seven reasons. Seven reasons why we let sin creep into our lives. We, we, number one, we underestimate the power of sin. Number two, we, oh, uh, we, we overestimate our power to resist sin. Number three, we are unfamiliar with the majesty of God. Number four, we are under, unacquainted with the achievements of Christ. Number five, we are unaware of how to access the power of Christ in real time. Number six, we are unsure of the meaning, the goal, the point of sanctification. We don't know why we're supposed to obey. And number seven, we are unskilled in thinking about eternity and the age to come. Those are seven factors that explain that. And so what this means is we're, we're talking about sanctification. We're talking about authentic life change and, and transformation. And again, the reason why I'm talking about this this morning is because I want you to take these seven things that I just gave you and then I want you to take the nine things that I'm about to give you, and I want you to take these things as tools. Take these things as instruments that you use just to help one another, to counsel one another, to strengthen one another in the fight against sin. I mean, because this is, this is what a redemptive relationship is. This is at the heart of a redemptive relationship. This is what it means to bear one another's burdens, is that we would be able to speak to one another at a level of skill, and increasing expertise and to be able to help one another grow in, in life change and Christ-like maturity. So what we're talking about is sanctification. How do we help one another be sanctified? And let me ask you this. What, what would you say, how would you define sanctification? So I know I can't hear you as you answer, but I want you to think about it. You know, what, what, what is sanctification? What does it mean to be sanctified? What, what is sanctification? It's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, at, at the very least, at, 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 in its most basic sense, we understand that, that it is to pursue holiness. We understand that it is, um, you know, to, to fight sin and to put it to death uh, by the power which God supplies. That is sanctification. And another level, sanctification is the raw, painful carving of our lives by the sword of the spirit into the image of the most glorious and beautiful person in the universe, right? That, that is sanctification. Ultimately, it, it's, it is that shaping, carving of our lives 
uh, into the image of Christ where we reflect him. And, 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 that's, and we see that in scripture, right? In Romans 8, 29, that, that the father has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Wow, that's that's incredible. That that's the goal of sanctification, right? The the the, the earlier point. It's like, well, we're unaware of the goal of sanctification. The goal is not to be more moral necessarily, although that's true. The goal is not to be better people necessarily, although that's true too, I suppose. The goal is to portray Christ. The goal is to reflect Christ. The goal is to resemble Christ. The goal is to put Christ on display and to mediate his beauty through transformed lives. That is sanctification. And so that leads to the question, then: um, what would you say then are uh, people's expectations when it comes down to, the, to sanctification? What, 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 are most, what, what do most people expect sanctification should be like and feel like? Does that make sense? Like, like, what are people's expectations about what sanctification should be like? What, what's what, like, what should I expect uh, that process to be like? Um, and the reality is, is that is that most people probably haven't thought about it. I, I didn't. I most certainly did not think about like, okay, well, I didn't even know what sanctification was. I'd never even heard that word before I became a Christian. And when people talked about it, it's like, well, I don't, I don't know what that word means at all. And I certainly was not prepared for the battle. Um, you know, so most people haven't thought about it. Most people haven't thought about, okay, well, what, what should that experience of sanctification feel like, be like? What, what should we expect? Um, most are, are probably grossly unprepared for the, the struggle that they're about to face. Um, I remember that one of the most encouraging baptism testimonies I'd ever heard was a girl, you know, there's sort of like this pressure temptation to, to say, you know, well, after I became a Christian, you know, all I had was peace and joy and, and it was incredible. And, um, and that's true. No, we, we can't deny that. Uh, there is peace. There is joy. There is delight. There is sanctification. There is happiness. There is fulfillment. All of those things are true. But what we don't realize is that all of those things can be true in the middle of a war, in the middle of a battle. That we can experience joy and pleasure and delight and, and satisfaction of our souls as bombs explode and bullets whiz by our heads, because that's that's exactly what the process of sanctification is like. That that's exactly the kind of expectations that we should have. It is war. It is a battle. It is brutal. It is fierce. It is bloody. It is painful. It is agonizing. And at the exact same time, our lives are supremely satisfied in Christ. So, so that's what I want to to talk about. Uh, now I'm going to give you I'm going to give you nine components, nine components for authentic life change and transformation. Nine components for uh, of sanctification. Okay, Th these are nine things that you need to know to be sanctified, to experience sanctification. That's what I want to talk about. And um, the, the, again, the, the reason is not just for your own personal edification, although that's true. I, I gave you the seven. Uh, points earlier, and I'm giving you these nine points now about sanctification precisely because I want to sharpen your sword and help one another in your redemptive relationships. I want, I want to give you something, more weapons in your arsenal that you can give to others so that they can wield them in their lives and, and put sin and temptation to death. So here they are, nine components 
necessary for authentic life change and transformation. These, these nine things you, you, you got to have so that you can experience true sanctification and transformation into the image of Christ. Okay, that's where we're going. And, and these will go fast. And, and yet I trust that these will be a help and an encouragement to you. Number one, Number one, the first component of authentic life change and transformation, the first thing about sanctification that you need to know to experience sanctification, number one, is that we must have an awakened awareness of our absolute spiritual incapacity. We must have a, a, a profound awareness of our absolute spiritual bankruptcy to live the Christian life on our own. That, that's the first place to begin. To the journey, the path of sanctification, painful with all of its struggles and pains and setbacks, the first thing on the list that we absolutely have to know about sanctification is our own spiritual bankruptcy on our own to live the Christian life. That's, that's just a fact. That is the place to begin. You know, what is that that they say at, at AA meetings, Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, that the first step is to admit that you have a problem? I don't know if that's true, but that's, that's the first step here in sanctification. It's that we admit that we have a problem, and the problem is we don't have the power within us to do what God commands. Because you understand the Christian life, it is not natural. It is profoundly supernatural. One of the things that we really have to understand and, and one of the things that we have to master as a Christian is that we must master the virtue of desperation. We need to master the virtue of desperation. In other words, we need to despair and our worthless resources to live the Christian life and cast ourselves upon Christ for his endless ones. That's really, really important. Second Corinthians 3, 5, Paul says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. You remember what, John, what Christ says in John 15, 5? He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. That wasn't hyperbole. That, that wasn't exaggeration. I mean, we could buy toothbrushes. We can eat burgers on our own. We can comb our own hair if we have it. But, but we cannot do what God commands on our own. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So that's the first step. We must have a profound awareness. To be sanctified, we must have a profound awareness of our own bankruptcy to live the Christian life. Number two, the second component necessary for sanctification. If you want to be sanctified, here's what you got to know. Number two, we must have an awakened perception to any defective desires, or patterns in thought, deed, or expectations that may have led to the current situation. I know that was a mouthful. Let me say that again. To be sanctified, we must have an awakened perception to any defective desires or patterns in thought, deed, or expectations that may have led to the current sin pattern. What I mean is, we have got to take the issues that we struggle with in our life. We've got to take anxiety. We've got to take fear. We've got to take lust. We've got to take greed. We've got to take materialism. We've got to take pride. We've got to take the, the issues. Think about the issues that you struggle in your life. We've got to take those issues and we have got to pull on the thread of those issues until we come to the core desire, pattern, or expectation that is defective. D does that make sense? 
let me give you an example. Um, anger. Let's take the issue of anger. Were we, were we to meet in, in service today, I would have preached on anger, not being angry as an elder qualification. Let's say you struggle with the, with the sin issue of anger. You know, well, we're so good at using replacement words. I blew my top. Ah, I got frustrated. Oh, I got, I got, you know, flustered. Um, you know, I lashed out at you. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, you know, uh, and, and yet, and we leave it there. We can't do that. We have to take the issue of anger and we have to drill beneath that and we have to find out, okay, what exactly is it? What were the defective desires that led to that? What were the defective the defective thinking that led to that. What what was the defective expectation that 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 led to that anger, um, and and so, so so that's what we really have to do to to be sanctified. We have to know, in other words, the root of our sin. We have to know the root of what led to it. So, for instance, with anger, the issue is is that probably a number of things. One, when we are angry, it's because we think we deserve better than what we're receiving in the moment. Number two, if, if we are angry, it's because we have uh, wrong expectations about uh, what it is to which we are entitled. And then number three, if we are angry, it's because we simply do not trust the sovereignty of God. To have placed, to have orchestrated all of those uh, components, all of those factors into the situation in which we are tempted to be angry. God is, God is sovereign over those. And when we're angry, it's because we don't, we don't believe those things. And so, so we have to learn how to drill down, pull the thread of our sin until we get to the root issue that's leading. And, and how you do that is by asking x-ray questions. We need to ask ourselves x-ray questions to get to the root of our sin. Here are some of those questions that, that you need to ask and you need to help other people ask about the issues in their lives. For instance, what do you love? What do you hate? Or... What were you wanting when you pursued this path or when you pursued this act? What, what were you wanting? What were you hoping would be the outcome? Number three, what do you want? What do you crave? What do you wish for? Here's another one. Um, uh, what are you hoping for more than anything else in life? Right? Well, like we, we need to drill down into our deepest desires and, and that helps us to know what is the root of our sin. Okay, so we must, we must have an awakened perception to any defective desires, patterns, and thought or deed that may have led to the current sin pattern. The third issue, the third component of sanctification, the thing we got to know to be sanctified is number three, we must have a renewed alertness to the power of sin with all of its deceptive nature and strategies. That we have to know that to be sanctified. We have to have a renewed alertness to the power of sin with its deceptive nature and strategies. Um, so in other words, part of what it means to, to have a redemptive relationship as we help with one, one another with, with sin and temptation, part of our job is to call people to a renewed wartime urgency and alertness to the power and deceptive nature of sin. We, we do, that, that's, that's, we really need to help people uh, uh, really uh, live with a sense of urgency uh, a sense of uh, a wartime mentality about sin and how dangerous it actually is. I think of Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceptive than all else. Who can understand it? Well, that, that's, a really, that's a really profound thought, right? You and I carry around inside our chest, as it were, the most deceptive 
and mysterious thing on the planet. That's really profound, that the human heart, that the, that the fallen human heart is so twisted, so tangled, so mutilated that it literally cannot be understood except anyone, except by anyone except for God. You have that inside of you. I have that inside of me. We need to know that to be sanctified. We need to be highly distrusting of ourselves, which is exactly what, what the Bible says. Proverbs 28, 26, that says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. Did you know that the Bible says that you should not believe in yourself? You should not trust in yourself. You should not listen to the to the desires and, and, and longings of your of your heart. You should not do what your heart tells you. Bad idea. Bad, because our hearts are deceptive and wicked above all else. Who can understand them? Um, you know, uh, Christ talks about in Mark 4, 9, the, the deceitfulness of riches. Ephesians 4, 22 talks about the, about the lusts of deception. Sin is deceitful. Sin is twisted. Sin lies to us. It tries to convince us that it can do only what Christ can do, namely satisfy the deepest longings of the human soul. So if you want to grow in sanctification and if you want to help others grow in sanctification, you need to have a renewed alertness to the power of sin and its deceptive nature and strategies. Number four. Number four. Fourth component to have to, to have sanctification, to, to grow in, in life change and transformation. Number four, we must absolutely have a restored confidence in the power of God's word to transform our lives. We must have a restored confidence in the power of God's word to transform our very lives. We just have to. You see, this is the agent. The word of God is the most lethal instrument of change known to man. And, and you see, we need to have a renewed trust in it. You see, mere moral resolve or willpower is not going to make you different. I mean, we can change some bad habits. We can modify our external behaviors. We can tweak a few things about our lives, maybe even sort of, you know, alter our personalities a little bit, but we cannot will ourselves into real, authentic, Christ-exalting life change and transformation. We can't do that. We need the power of Scripture. It is the sword of the Spirit. It cuts, it carves, it shapes, it sculpts, it dissects, it does surgery. Hebrews 4.12, you remember what it says. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It pierces, it cuts, it is able to dig down into the, the strange and, 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 and um, twisted caverns of the human soul that we cannot do. Nothing on earth can do that. Not even the gamma ray. In, in, in the medical field can pierce into the human soul, but the word can. The word can do that. Um, Psalm 19. Psalm 19, you, you know it well. It says, The law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are, Lord are sure, rejoicing the heart. The precepts of the Lord are, are right, enlightening of the eyes. I mean, you, you look at that in, in Psalm 19, 7 through 10. And, and it's just it's profoundly filled with the attributes of God's word that is able to change and transform our lives. I think of Psalm 119, 133, 
where it says, establish my footsteps in your word and do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. What a prayer for our sanctification. Established, it's a prayer. God, cause my footsteps to be established in your word and do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. See, we need to have a renewed sense of trust in the power of God's word to do what we cannot do on our own. And again, I mention that because that is your one of your chief encouragements uh, uh, to those in the church in your redemptive relationships to trust in the power of God's word. Number five, number five, fifth component of, of sanctification. We got to know this to be sanctified. Number five, uh, we must have an increasing perceptivity to the unrivaled majesty and beauty of God in even our most private moments. We must have an increasing perceptivity to the unrivaled majesty and beauty of God in even our most private moments. See, what we need to do is we need to remember that no matter where we are, when no one can see us, God is there. Again, we need to have that profound God consciousness, don't we? That knows that no matter where we're standing, we're standing on holy ground because God is there. We need to, to grow in, in being so captivated and enthralled and um, uh, uh, exhilarated and, and gripped by the nature of who God is. And, and that our minds are so saturated with, with thoughts about the high level, glorious, beautiful things exalted thoughts about the, the glory of who God is, that, that theology so fills and drenches and saturates our mind that, that even when no one is watching, we, our, our thoughts are filled with who God is. You see, the, the, probably the foundational issue, the foundational issue in our sanctification is that we have an overpowering sense of who God is. That we know, that we can recite, we have memorized his attributes and perfections and, and, and his, his uh, uh, um, excellencies that make him who he is. We need to know God. That is, is so crucial. When I mean, you think about um, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 and that glorious, staggering vision where, where Isaiah had that... that um, uh, glorious glimpse of the holy and holiness and the majesty of Yahweh. And we need, the way he responded, the way he was exhilarated by God, we need that for our own lives also. And so we need to grow. We need to make sure that we meditate on the majesty and beauty of God because the more we do that, the higher up into God we climb, the more sanctified and holy we then become. We need to grow in, in loving and rejoicing and fearing God as we behold his beauty. Number six, number six, sixth component for sanctification. We've got to have this to be sanctified. Number six, we must have increasingly explicit familiarity with Christ and everything he accomplished. We must have explicit, increasingly explicit familiarity with Christ and everything he accomplished. If you want to grow in being like Christ, you need to see Christ and you need to know what he has done. You need to know at some level of growing intimacy what the transaction of his death actually accomplished for sinners like us. You need to know. And what did his death accomplish? What did he purchase? What, what did his death produce? And you think about it. Uh, 
the, the list of things is endless. I like to think about the salvation. I've talked about this before. I like to think about salvation to be like a glorious vault filled with priceless gold bars. And each individual gold bar is an individual aspect of something that Christ purchased for you if you belong to him. So you think about what those gold bars are. Forgiveness. The gold bar of forgiveness. The gold bar of justification. The gold bar of redemption. The gold bar of regeneration. The gold bar of adoption, the gold bar of eternal life, the gold bar of reconciliation, the gold bar of the indwelling, uh, uh, the, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it, it, this, this glorious salvation vault filled with these priceless gold bars, we need to know and be exhilarated by those gold bars of salvation because the more we know about the individual things that Christ purchased for us, the more we know those and love those and trust those, the more we can be changed by those things. Do you see? I, I think of Romans 6. I mean, listen to what, what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 6. This is an, an unbelievable text. And listen to the hope that it has embedded within it, that our lives can truly, actually be changed. The, the things that he says about, about, about what our lives could and must be is staggering. This is Romans 6, verses 1 through 11. He says, what therefore shall we say? Should, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. We who died to sin, how shall we still live in it? Or do you not know that as many of us have been baptized into Christ, that we were baptized into his death? We were buried with him, therefore, through baptism into death, in order that Christ, even as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Listen carefully. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified together with him. And that our, and that our in order that our body of sin would be done away with. That we would no longer be slaves to sin. For the one who has died has been freed from sin. And if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For what he died, he died to sin once for all. And what he lives, he lives to God. Therefore, do not consider yourselves to be, um, do not uh, consider yourselves dead, but uh, to sin. Consider yourselves, sorry, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's a staggering pronouncement of what we have in Christ, isn't it? Again, listen to what it said. Our old man, old self, crucified together with him. Our body of sin, done away with. No longer slaves to sin. Freed from sin, he goes on to say. That is true. That is what's real. That is reality. We are in Christ. We are no longer slaves. So we must have increasingly explicit familiarity with Christ and everything that he accomplished with his death because there is real change and transformation possible. Number seven, seventh component of sanctification. I'm almost done. We must have a precise methodology in place by which we can access the transforming power of Christ. 
to be sanctified, we actually have to have a precise methodology in place by which we access the life-transforming power of Christ. Because again, remember the disconnect. We know that this historical event of the crucifixion happened back then sometime, but we don't know how to make the connection between that event and our actual real life sins and temptations that we experience in the trenches of life. So in other words, we actually have to know, uh, uh, understand what the Bible says about how we actually access the power of Christ in our lives. How do we do it? How do we get access to that? What is the God-ordained means by which we gain access to the power of Christ for life change? How do we be different? And although the answer is familiar, although it sounds like something that you would say, the little kids would say in a Sunday school class, the Sunday school answer is still the right answer. The answer, the methodology by which we access the power of Christ in our lives is the word of God and prayer. It is the feast of Holy Scripture and the banquet of prayer. And we know that because John 15 tells us so. It's exactly what it says. You remember that great passage where Christ talks about abiding in him, right? In, in verse 15, or in verse 7, however, he says that if my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If my words abide in you, if scripture abides in you, ask, that's prayer, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Do, do you see what he says? He, he's saying that, that when we have scripture abiding in us, when we are, get this, relying on scripture, meditating on scripture in real time, in the trenches of real life experiences, when we have the word of God integrated into every moment of our lives, and we are de actively depending upon what the Bible says. So, for instance, if you're in a situation which you know you're going to be tempted with lust, and then you then you take uh, a passage of Scripture, and you you be meditating on that, thinking about that, you know, reciting that in your mind as you walk, making it your prayer. Pray that text back to God, and and what does Christ say? Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. The word and prayer, the word and prayer. The Sunday school answer is still the right answer. That is the methodology. And so, so you know, people and people will sometimes say, well, I know I've read the Bible and, and it doesn't work. You know, I've tried to pray and it doesn't work. I, I don't see change. Well, the answer is not, the, the, the problem is not that, that you've gone to the wrong source of power. The, the problem is that you are misusing the instrument. Right? We have to read the Bible the way the Bible wants us to read the Bible. We need to pray in the way that the Bible calls us to pray. It's not that those, those weapons are defective. It's that we don't know how to use those weapons. And, and so we need to help people learn. It's like, look, it's not just that you read the Bible in the morning and you're good. It's that you rely on the text in real time. We must remember the word, memorize it. We must, we must recall the word in real life situations. We must recite the word, the, the, the truth of God's word in actual situations, and we must rely on the power of the word and make it our prayer. Eighth component, eighth component of, of sanctification. We, we need to know this to be sanctified. In other words, uh, number eight, we must have a compelling, motivating aim for why we pursue sanctification in the first place. 
We must have a compelling, motivating aim for why we pursue sanctification in the first place. In other words, we need to know why we're pursuing holiness, why we're fighting sin, why we're being holy. We got to know that. Because as they say, if you aim for nothing, you hit it every time. And that's the exact same with our sanctification. You see, if we don't know the cosmic reasons for our obedience, we will not begin to feel that holiness and obedience are compelling in our lives. We will not. Because that's the question. What is? What is the compelling, motivating, motivating aim that the Bible gives us for our sanctification? What is the compelling, motivating aim for why we should pursue authentic life change and transformation? And the New Testament tells us. In fact, there, there's multiple reasons. One, the glory of the Father. We pursue life change and transformation to put God on display for the treasure that he is. Do, do you realize that, that when you obey, that when you choose the, the glory of Christ over uh, the grime of sin, that in that moment you are making a statement? That, that you're making a statement about what you tre treasure, about what you prize, about what you value? We obey because it puts God on display. It is a, it's an apologetic tool that displays to the world that there's something more satisfying than sin. The other reason, though, there, there's other reasons, multiple reasons the New Testament gives us. Did you know, did you know that one of the reasons why we should pursue obedience is because um, it itself uh, uh, provides a great reward? It's true. Psalm 19.11 says, in keeping God's word is great reward. That's profound, isn't it? In other words, it is we obey because it is more satisfying to obey than not obey. We obey because true, heartfelt, Christ-dependent obedience brings great pleasure to our souls. It does. It is more satisfying than sin. It is. We obey. The compelling vision that, that helps us obey is because it satisfies. There's great reward in doing what God commands. And then listen to Proverbs 3, 7 and 8. It says, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Okay, you need to obey. Why though? Why? It says, for it will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. It is fulfilling to obey. It is fulfilling, satisfying, um, glorifying to the Lord to obey what God commands. It's not just being good for goodness sake. It is that we are delighting in God. It's, it's that, that delighting in God is so much more compelling than the passing pleasures of sin. But then there's another reason, another reason why we obey. You see, when we pursue holiness and life transformation, do, do you realize what we're doing? Our lives are to be like little theatrical trailers. See, when our lives are changed and gradually transformed, we are portraying to the world what Christ will do to the entire planet when he comes. Our lives are just little foretastes of the entire cosmic transformation that Jesus Christ will perform when he comes to claim his kingdom. And so... There's so many uh, components to, to why we should obey. It's not just because we need to be good people. It's because our lives are a stage that put Jesus Christ on display. And we gladly obey because it is so much more supremely satisfying than the passing pleasures of sin. And then number nine, the ninth component of sanctification, the reason why we need to be 
uh, we need to, the ninth thing we need to know to be sanctified is number nine, we must have a captivating vision of eternity that shapes our desires, sustains our hope, and determines the pattern and trajectory of our lives. Again, insanely long, I'll read it again. We must have a compelling or captivating vision of eternity that shapes our desires, that sustains our hope, and determines the patterns and trajectory of our lives. Do, do, do you hear what that's saying? If we have a, a captivating vision of eternity and what the end of the world will be, if we know what the target is and where human history is headed, guess what that does? It radically alters the trajectory of our lives in the present, right? And so that's, that's so huge. If we know, if we know eschatology, if we know where human history is headed, if we know how the world is going to end, and if that is captivating and beautiful to us, inevitably, inevitably, we will pursue life change and transformation. How, how, how do we know that? How, how is that true? Listen to what John says. In 1 John 3, listen to what he says. The role of knowing the end times is, the, the role that that plays in our sanctification and holiness. Now, listen to what he says. This is from chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. He says, Behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And we are the children of God, he says. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Listen carefully. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet been made manifest what we shall be. But we know that whenever he should be made manifest, that is Christ, we will be like him because we will see him even as he is. So he, he's saying that the day is coming when Christ is manifest, that when he comes, then, 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 our, then we will be transformed. We'll be, when he comes, if we're dead, we'll rise from the dead with new glorified bodies. If we are alive, when he shows up, he will transform our bodies and we will be like him. He will transform our bodies into the likeness of, of his glorified body. Our body of sin will be totally done away with. But notice what he says, and, and, and here's the connection. Everyone who has this hope set on him purifies himself even as he is pure. Do, do you hear what he says? Everyone who hopes and longs and who waits on the edge of our seat for Jesus Christ to come, that inevitably results in the purification of our lives as we wait for him. That's what he says. Why? How, how does that work? Because, because, because we so long to experience a, a, a sinless, glorified body that, that he will bring about when he returns, we long in our lives to experience as much of that now in our everyday lives as absolutely possible. So therefore, if we have hope, if we are looking forward to the transformation of our lives then that's going to change the taste buds of our soul. And, and sin now is going to be less appealing because we so long to, be the, the, to experience the transformation that Christ brings at the end. So therefore, everyone who has this hope set on him purifies himself even as he is pure. We need to know eschatology. We need to know the end times. The more we know eschatology in the end times, the more we will want to pursue life change and transformation. So that's nine components of, of sanctification. I gave you seven points earlier, nine components of sanctification. Again, here's what they are. 
we must have an awakened awareness of our absolute spiritual bankruptcy. That's, that's number one. Number two, we must have an awakened perception to any defective patterns, thoughts, expectations in our lives that led to the current situation. Number three, we must have a renewed alertness to the power of sin with its deceptive nature and strategies. Number four, we must have restored confidence in the power of God's word to change and transform us. Number five, we must have increasing perceptivity to the unrivaled majesty and, and beauty of God, even in our most private moments. Number six, we must have increasing, increasingly explicit familiarity with Christ and everything that he accomplished. Number seven, we must have a precise methodology in place by which we access the life-transforming power of Christ. Number eight, we must have a compelling, motivating aim for why we pursue holiness and sanctification in the first place. And number nine, we must have a captivating vision of eternity that shapes our desires, that sustains our hope, and determines the patterns and trajectories of our lives. That's, we, those are the kinds of things we, we need for, to be sanctified, to, to be holy. And again, the reason why I tell you those things, the reason why I give you those nine components is not just to help you, but I give you those so that you will be able to help others, so that you, you will be able to speak into the lives of others because you understand that the default mode of most people is struggle. But we, we all struggle mightily with sin and, and temptation and, 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 and this is challenging. You know, God has called us, sanctification is not normal. It, it is not natural. It is profoundly supernatural. And so therefore we need to help and sustain and counsel and, and strengthen one another with these kinds of, of insights to help us in our redemptive relationships. Okay, so that's, that's it. That's all I wanted to, to talk about. Um, 57 minutes later, here we are, almost did that for an hour. I literally thought that would be a half hour, but this is just so crucial, so crucial for our relationships. And so may these, may these tools, may these be uh, more effective weapons in your arsenal of how to do church, uh, weapons in the arsenal of your relationships to help one another be more like Jesus Christ. Well, thank you, church. I uh, appreciate you. I hope you uh, are, are rejoicing in the Lord as you are stuck inside in, a, in, a, um, in, a, in an uh, Antarctic-like you know, uh, weather. Um, may uh, your souls be encouraged. May, may your hope be full. May your joy be set on Jesus Christ, and may you delight in him above all things. And may our lives be evermore transformed into his image and thus put him on display as the supreme treasure of our lives. Praying for you, church, praying for you by name, um, and uh, I can't wait to see you in person next Sunday.